The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Sometime in 1819, George Keats and his newly married wife, Georgiana, who were living in America, received a letter from George's older brother. The letter had been written over a period of several months, and it included a lot of excited questions about life in America. Quote, now you have by this time crumpled up your large bonnet, the brother writes to his new sister-in-law. What do you wear? A cap? Do you put your hair in papers of a night? Have you any tea? Or do you drink milk and water? What place of worship do you go to? The Quakers, the Moravians, the Unitarians, or the Methodists? Are there any flowers in bloom you like? Any beautiful heaths? Any streets full of corset makers? What sort of shoes have you to fit those pretty feet of yours? Have you a fiddle? End quote. The long letter was extended as the brother in London sought a proper carrier to deliver it, which wasn't easy in those days, especially as the destination moved, as George and Georgiana traveled from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh to Henderson, Kentucky, to Illinois, then back to Henderson, and eventually to Louisville. But the delays in finding the means of delivery didn't stop the writing, as the brother in London copied out some passages from essays of the day and some of his own deep philosophizing, some questions and ideas about the nature of the universe, and the details of the daily happenings from the this and that of London society to religious and spiritual inquiries and discovery. The letter also described moments of poetic inspiration, new ideas for poetic forms, and a few poems that the author, an aspiring poet, had copied out for his brother and his bride to see. Today, we wouldn't think of this letter as much more than a period piece curiosity, except that it's teeming with ideas, and of course, because it contains the poems of John Keats, written during one of the most fertile periods of the Romantic poet's life. In viewing them in the context of the letter, and his letters in general, we can see some of the ideas swirling through Keats's mind, as the letters themselves become the first commentary on his poems, not intended for public consumption, not formal, not organized or comprehensive, but nevertheless rich with ideas and packed with insights that keep scholars busy and fascinate amateurs. After writing out recent poems, including La Belle Dame Sans Merci and several sonnets, Keats wrote the following, quote, The following poem, the last I have written, is the first and the only one with which I have taken even moderate pains. I have, for the most part, dashed off my lines in a hurry. This I have done leisurely. I think it reads the more richly for it, and will, I hope, encourage me to write other things in even a more peaceable and healthy spirit. End quote. The poem was called Ode to Psyche, and it has taken its place among five other poems Keats wrote in 1819, and that are now called The Great Odes. Last time we spoke with Anahid Nersessian, who developed a passion for romantic poetry, and Keats in particular, at a young age. And she mentioned this poem as the one that gets to her especially. We'll explore Ode to Psyche for ourselves today on The History of Literature. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. This is episode 307, Keats's Ode to Psyche. I'm Jack Wilson. It's nice to be here, and I'm glad you're here with me. So let's get straight to it. That's what we do here as we journey through literature. Sometimes we wander, and sometimes we go straight at them, as Nelson used to say, at least in the Aubrey Maturin version of Nelson. Never mind the maneuvers. Always go straight at them. So let's go straight at them. First, we're going to talk a little about Greek and Roman myths, including Cupid and Psyche. Yes, this is a good one for Valentine's Day week. Then we'll hear from a pair of listeners, and then our main course for the day, Keats's poem, Ode to Psyche. 
which is not short but not long either, just right for reading aloud, giving you some line-by-line or stanza-by-stanza analysis and trying to see for ourselves what makes it so good. T.S. Eliot said it's probably the best of the odes. I'm not sure everyone agrees with that. Some of the others, Ode to Nightingale, Ode on a Grecian Urn, come on. Some of them are the, to Autumn, some of them are the most famous and celebrated poems in the English language. But hey, it's worth spending some of our time on it. They're all good and they're all worth our while. And we just got a big vote of big thumbs up from our guest, Anahid Nersesian, who knows this stuff inside and out. So we will take a look at Ode to Psyche. As a reminder of who uh, Cupid and Psyche were, well, we know Cupid also is Eros, the god of love. And in our mind's eye, we see a cherub, a little baby with a, a quiver and arrows. And Valentine's Day is filled with these little fellows. The tradition being, of course, that they shoot arrows at unsuspecting people and make them fall in love. Is that what it feels like to fall in love, people? As if it, it hits you out of the blue, unexpected, maybe even causing a little pain, shocking anyway, certainly something out of our control, and maybe we hope it's out of the control of the other target as well, that she or he will be overcome by some powerful feeling towards us. That's flattering, right? Not a clear-eyed assessment of our, our good qualities and our bad, but, but an assessment saturated with and filtered through a feeling of love and affection and attraction. Apparently, this iconographic version of Cupid as a baby has been handed down to us thanks to a tradition of using babies to remind us of famous parents, especially when the baby is supposed to be a blend of the two. But who were those two parents? Who were Cupid's parents? It actually changed over time and from myth to myth. Venus or Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, or we might say the goddess of love and sex and beauty and fertility, is typically Cupid's mother. In some versions, Cupid has no father, but in most versions, it's either Mercury, the swift messenger god, or Mars, the god of war. Love plus war. And Cupid is the result, using his arrows for a more benign and productive purpose, but also still kind of aggressive, if you think about it. He's still shooting people with them. Cicero said that there were three Cupids, just like there were three Venuses in his mind. The first Cupid was the son of Diana the Huntress and Mercury. The second was the son of Mercury and Venus. And the third was Mars and the second Venus. Seneca threw Vulcan in as a possible father. In the English Renaissance, Christopher Marlowe imagined 10,000 Cupids. And while none of these... Uh, sources were Keats's primary source. All of them would have been in the air for him. Psyche was not born a goddess. She was a mortal, a princess, but extremely beautiful. So beautiful that the people described her as the next Aphrodite. Hmm. The next Venus, naturally. This enraged Aphrodite who sent her son Eros or Cupid to entice her, entice Psyche, to fall in love with a bad man. Psyche was alone now. Her sisters were also jealous of her beauty. Her father, the king, saw the writing on the wall and consulted an oracle who said, your daughter will fall in love with a beast that everyone fears. Psyche was taken to a, a high mountain peak to die, but she was rescued by the west wind who took her to a mysterious palace. It was the palace of Eros himself, who disguised his appearance so she wouldn't realize who he truly was. And if this sounds to you a bit like the Beauty and the Beast, well, yes, this is one of the inspirations for that fairy tale. Eros, who, remember, had been sent by his mother to destroy this potential rival, instead fell in love with her. He was fulfilling his mother's request make her fall in love with a bad creature, this potential rival, this beautiful potential rival. Make her fall in love with the bad creature. But Eros now was trying to be that bad creature. 
Eventually, she figures it out, and the two of them wind up together. Now, I've summarized all of this, which is told in different ways in different sources, just to give you the, the skeletal background. What we really care about is what the myth meant to Keats when he sat down to write his poem. Let's take our break now, then we'll hear from some listeners, and then we'll come back with the version of Cupid and Psyche that mattered most to Keats, including his own words on what he found so promising in that story. And then, of course, we will look at the poem Ode to Psyche itself after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Subject. Hi, Jack. Listener fan mail. Hi, Jack. I hope you're keeping safe from the pandemic. Greetings from Down Under. I am obviously a fan of your podcast, of which I have been listening to for maybe a year, give or take a few months. I honestly cannot remember how I stumbled across it, but I was likely ardently searching for more literary content to add to my listening library. Podcasts consume my life nowadays. Books have been such a big part of my life growing up. I am from a town in Western Australia of 30-ish people and was the only kid around for almost all my childhood. But, unfortunately, like many people when they hit adolescence, I stopped reading for a long time. Too long. I once was a constant consumer of young adult fiction, fantasy, and historical fiction, and would read at any chance to sate my book lust, leaving my head constantly in the clouds where it is often today. Even when I wasn't reading, I was consumed by the idea of reading amid my own large library, carrying around knowledge of past poets, philosophers, and great classical authors like aristocratic gentlemen did in movies. Do not fear for me, however. I have rediscovered my mojo these last few years, finally having the chance to delve into classic authors and titles I have always been told about, who have defined generations and styles. Shelley, Homer, Virgil, Pyle, Goethe, Doyle, sorry, Poe, Shakespeare, Christie, Burgess. The list is extensive. However it happened, I am stoked to be back reading. The email goes on to talk about some more favorites. It asks a few questions about previous episodes of the podcast. And then it says, when I listen to your podcasts, I am often torn, to be honest. One part of me wants to listen and learn about the book and its nuances, while another part wants to just close my eyes and relax to the calm timber of your voice and have a restful sleep. This actually brings me to the purpose of my email. Jack, would you find it disagreeable to doing another, shorter podcast where you read bedtime stories to fall asleep to? I do not mean this to be derogative at all. It is purely a compliment. You have such a soothing, unassuming voice, which is comforting to me. Hope you are well. Regards, Josh, Australia. Well, thank you, Josh. I hope you are also doing well down there in Australia. Bedtime stories. I have a voice for bedtime stories. 
Kind of like this song, I suppose, which John Lennon wrote but said Ringo should sing it. He has the voice for it. Now it's time to say I will take that as a compliment. I'm flattered that you hear my voice that way. I do have some ideas for other podcasts, two of them, in fact, and I think one of them in particular would work very well for you as you drift off to sleep. I'm tempted to do a few of these episodes just to give you guys a taste. Maybe I should do that this summer. We could do a wild card month, a fun bag month where I do a history of literature episode on Monday and on Thursday we do something from the archives or one of the new shows or some kind of potpourri episode. I will think that over. In the meantime, thank you very much for your email. I enjoyed your passion and appreciated your kind words about the show. Next email. Subject, letter of thanks. Hello, Jack. I'd much like to write you a letter of thanks. I am a fan from China. Your podcast has accompanied me for over half a year. At the beginning, I just listened to it during my daily walking exercise. Then, I tried to catch a few words here and there that drew me into the writers and their works through your amazing voice and your wonderful reading experience. Gradually, I developed the habit of doing the dictations for each episode. (laughs) Wow. I don't want to miss any words of beauty and truth in them. I have just listened to the John Keats episodes. Nice. The beauty and the truth. I have done about 35 episodes this way. It helped me concentrate, and it has been a time of reverie for me during the listening. I enjoy you and your podcast so much. It is a kind of blessing for me to be introduced to you and all the writers. By the way, I like the... Augustine episode and Marcel episode, the best. I want to introduce you to my favorite writer, Marilyn Robinson, but I won't listen to that episode. Ha ha ha. All in all, thank you for sharing. It really means a lot more than my poor expression can articulate. Best, best wishes, Xiao Jun. Hmm. Wow. Xiao Jun, thank you so much for that beautiful email. I am so impressed that you have been writing these episodes out. I'm a little, oh, makes me a little fearful in a way. I'm a little anxious about that. I wish I was doing a better job, (laughs) but I do the best I can. Okay. That's it for today's listener emails. Thank you again, Xiao Jun, for that beautiful email. I will be thinking about that for a long time. Here we go. One more break, and then we will dive into Ode to Psyche. Okay, so, as 1818 turned to 1819, John Keats had a lot going on. In the spring of 1818, when Keats was 22, he finished and published his poem Endymion. In June, his brother and sister-in-law left for America. We talked about that at the beginning. In July and August, he went on a walking tour of Scotland. In August... He took care of his brother Tom, who was sick with tuberculosis, and he met Fanny Braun for the first time. Hold that thought. Also that fall of 1818, his poems were attacked by snobbish reviewers. Remember that this was the man who had given up his career as an aspiring surgeon's assistant to devote his life to poetry. Bad reviews hurt. They hurt all of us, even lowly podcasters, everyone, but hey, For a podcaster, that's part of the deal. The difference is that today, the reviews come fast and furious. There are hundreds coming in from readers or listeners all over the world and from all walks of life, and they just speed right by. Back then, there might only be a handful of outlets that a poet might care about. There were no other reviews in print, and the world of poetry was small. And so a bad review felt much more acute. It was a condemnation. 
of you, your poetry, your decision to write it, and so on. You only got a few bites at the apple, and everyone who mattered to you knew how the apple had tasted to the biters. Keats turned 23 on Halloween of 1819, and he began writing the epic poem Hyperion. On December 1st, his brother Tom passed away. John then started writing The Eve of St. Agnes in January of 1819. He got depressed, he wrote some other poems, and he eventually gave up writing Hyperion. And then the bronze moved in across the courtyard. Hold that thought again. Keats was a magpie, reading everything, seeing everything, experiencing everything, thinking everything. You can see it in his letters. It can be hard to keep up with the flood of ideas and thoughts and reviews and jokes and passions as they flow from his mind to his pen and onto the page. Such an inspiring set of documents to read those letters. It makes you want to be young again and free and full of gusto and to really embrace life and then he writes La Belle Dame Sans Merci and the Odes, and he starts to show the signs of tuberculosis himself. So now he's got this passion for poetry, this new love, Fanny Braun, these new poems flying out of his pen, the feeling that he's doomed, not just an idle feeling, but one rooted in having seen his brother fall ill and die just months before, and then to have the same symptoms himself. And he gets engaged to Fanny Braun, and he falls into a depressed state. By the end of the year, he will have about 14 months left to live. That's John Keats's 1819. That's the context for the writing of Ode to Psyche. We know of at least three versions of the Psyche myth that Keats drew upon. A classical scholar named John Lempriere uh, had come out with a book called Bibliotheca Classica, or a classical dictionary containing a full account of all the proper names mentioned in ancient authors. That was the title. Keats owned this work, and it was part of a, a pattern for him to dive into it. Latin and Greek were more for the ruling class, but his tackling these subjects were not just an example of his hungry mind searching for food, but that of a striving young poet looking to wrestle with the greatest of poetic subjects and ideas, the things swirling around in the air. Many of his poems were based on Greek and Roman stories and characters and concepts. Keats had a love-hate relationship with his next source, Mary Teig, an, author, uh, an Irish author who wrote a book called Psyche, or The Legend of Love. Keats had read it when he was younger, then he dismissed it as unworthy, then he seems to have come back around to it, to explore it a little further. Tig wrote her poem in, or her poem about Psyche was written in Spenserian stanzas. I'll give you a little taste of it. Here's uh, a quote from that poem. Quote, The dart which in his hand now trembling stood, as o'er the couch he bent with ravished eye, drew with its daring point celestial blood from his smooth neck's unblemished ivory. Notice that in Tig's version, Cupid accidentally shoots himself with the arrow, so to speak, falling in love against his will. That comes from the original version, which is the third source that Keats had, something he read and could draw upon. The original version of the Cupid and Psyche story came from the second century A.D., from the Roman Apuleius, who wrote The Golden Ass. Apuleius is the main source for the most famous strand of the Cupid and Psyche myth, the first one. He wrote in prose. His work was like a, an ancient novel. We definitely should do a show on Apuleius. Keats wrote to his brother in 1818 to say he no longer loved Tighe's work, and so he was turning to Apuleius itself, as translated by William Adlington, in 1566. By law, I am now, by podcaster law, history of literature podcaster law, I am now required to mention Keats's famous poem on first looking into Chapman's Homer, which describes Keats's excitement at reading another 16th century 
translation of a famous classical work. Actually, this one came out between 1598 and 1616. George George Chapman's translation of the Odyssey and the Iliad. But you get the idea. The English Renaissance writers rediscovered Greece and Rome, and they made these translations, and they handed them off to Keats and his fellow poets roughly 200 years later. And so the cycle of poetry and scholarship and myth-making and classical inspiration continued. Apuleius tells a long story of Cupid and Psyche that fleshes out the basic sketch I gave you earlier. Psyche is beautiful. She's the second coming of Venus. Venus is jealous and sends Cupid to work some revenge. Cupid accidentally scratches himself with his dart and falls in love with Psyche. Psyche's father, the king, consults the oracle. They take Psyche to die on a rocky crag, but the west wind arrives to rescue her and deposits her in a meadow where she falls asleep. In Apuleius, she wakes up and travels to the gorgeous house in which Cupid is living. There's more to the story after that. There's the whole relationship between the two of them. But we can stop there so we can turn to Keats. This is kind of the the point where Keats stops the story in his freeze frame before we hear the Ode to Psyche. Let's hear the whole poem first, and then we'll break it down. Ode to Psyche by John Keats O goddess, hear these tuneless numbers rung by sweet enforcement and remembrance dear, and pardon that thy secrets should be sung even into thine own soft conched ear. Surely I dreamt today, or did I see the winged psyche with awakened eyes? I wandered in a forest thoughtlessly, and on the sudden, fainting with surprise, saw two fair creatures, couched side by side in deepest grass, beneath the whispering roof of leaves and trembled blossoms, where there ran a brooklet scarce espied, mid-hushed. Cool-rooted flowers, fragrant-eyed, blue, silver-white, and budded Tyrian. They lay calm-breathing on the bedded grass, their arms embraced, and their pinions too. Their lips touched not, but had not bade adieu. As if disjoined by soft-handed slumber, and ready still past kisses to outnumber at tender eye-dawn of Aurorian love. The winged boy I knew, but who wast thou, O happy, happy dove, his psyche true? O latest born and loveliest vision, far of all Olympus's faded hierarchy, fairer than Phoebe's sapphire-regent star, or Vesper, amorous glowworm of the sky, fairer than these, though temple thou hast none, nor altar, heaped with flowers, nor virgin choir to make delicious moan upon the midnight hours. No voice, no lute, no pipe, no incense sweet from chain-swung censer teeming, no shrine, no grove, no oracle, no heat of pale-mouthed prophet dreaming. O brightest, though too late for antique vows, too too late for the fond-believing lyre, when holy were the haunted forest boughs, holy the air, the water, and the fire. Yet even in these days so far retired from happy pieties, thy lucent fans fluttering among the faint Olympians, I see and sing by my own eyes inspired, so let me be thy choir and make a moan upon the midnight hours, thy voice thy lute, thy pipe, thy incense sweet from swinged censer teeming, thy shrine, thy grove, thy oracle, thy heat of pale-mouthed prophet dreaming. Yes, I will be thy priest and build a fane in some untrodden region of my mind where branched thoughts new-grown with pleasant pain instead of pines shall murmur in the wind. Far, far around shall those dark-clustered trees fledge the wild-ridged mountains steep by steep, 
And there by zephyrs, streams, and birds, and bees, the moss-lane dryads shall be lulled to sleep. And in the midst of this wide quietness, a rosy sanctuary will I dress with the wreathed trellis of a working brain, with buds and bells and stars without a name, with all the gardener fancy e'er could feign, who breeding flowers will never breed the same, and there shall be for thee all soft delight that shadowy thought can win, a bright torch and a casement ope at night to let the warm love in. Okay. We can start with what animated Keats as he wrote to his brother George when he copied out this new poem for him. Remember that Keats has recently met Fanny Braun, whom he called, quote, beautiful, elegant, graceful, silly, fashionable, and strange, end quote. Later, he wrote about Fanny. Shall I give you Miss Braun? She is about my height, with a fine style of countenance of the lengthened sort. She wants sentiment in every feature. She manages to make her hair look well. Her nostrils are fine, though a little painful. Her mouth is bad and good. Her profile is better than her full face, which indeed is not full, but pale and thin without showing any bone. Her shape is very graceful, and so are her movements. Her arms are good, her hands badish. Her feet, tolerable. She is not seventeen, but she is ignorant, monstrous in her behavior, flying out in all directions, calling people such names, that I was forced lately to make use of the term minx. This is, I think, not from any innate vice, but from a penchant she has for acting stylishly. End quote. That's his beauty. That's his fanny. <laughs> Head over heels, he fell completely in love with her, with her arms are good, but her hands bad-ish and her tolerable feet. He was too sick to go dancing in those days, so she went out with army officers, which filled him with anxiety. He wrote her letters. He tried to recover from his illness. His letters to her are full of his deepest thoughts. He had turned her, in his imagination, into the very symbol of beauty, the beauty and truth the beautiful truth or the truthful beauty that he had always sought to discover or invent or cling to. She was his muse now and would soon be his fiance. And so, as he begins to write, Ode to Psyche, he's got this on his mind. Fanny Braun, his feelings for her, a near obsession, a love, an object of desire, and then something else affects him. His reading of the story, Cupid and Psyche. This is the part that he wrote to George just before he introduces his poem to George. He says, quote, You must recollect that Psyche was not embodied as a goddess before the time of Apuleius the Platonist, who lived after the Augustan age, and consequently the goddess was never worshipped or sacrificed to with any of the ancient fervor and perhaps never thought of in the old religion. I am more orthodox than to let a heathen goddess be so neglected. End quote. I think that is the key. His words, Keats's words, that's the key to my reading of the poem. I am more orthodox than to let a heathen goddess be so neglected. She was never worshipped or sacrificed to. She didn't benefit from the ancient fervor. Psyche is a lesser goddess in the Pantheon. We know that. She's lower on Mount Olympus. She didn't have the lineage. She was a mortal. She was second to Venus. We know all of that. But in Keats's mind, there was something a bit more than just that he found himself drawn to a secondary character. It was that she was a secondary character, a bit of an outsider, a latecomer, and also ran. It was left to him to animate her to give her the love and worship she'd never gotten, the ancient fervor that had never been hers. This rings true with me, and it's the reason why I call this the history of literature, even though I like contemporary fiction too. I'm trying to get at more than just what these works mean, but what they meant to people in the past, both writers and readers, and how that has cascaded down through the ages. That's what fascinates me. More than just the words on the page, 
But all the people who have taken delight in these words or found meaning in them or changed their life because of them, changed their life or had their life changed, they shot the arrow or the arrow shot them. Keats isn't just interested in these characters and these ideas, although he's definitely interested in them. He's also interested in the way they've resonated through history. The religious fervor that people have given to these characters and these ideas. Bards of passion and of mirth, he says in a famous poem, ye have left your souls on earth. Have ye souls in heaven too, double-lived in regions new? Yes, he thinks in the poem, they do. They do. They now talk to each other in heaven, these bards, where the nightingale doth sing, not a senseless, transit thing, but divine, melodious truth and philosophic numbers smooth, and tales and golden histories of heaven and its mysteries. Here on earth the bards still live, through the souls they've touched, the works that teach us, the works that speak to mortals of their sorrows and delights, their passions and their spites, their glory and their shame. That's the history of literature in a nutshell. And that's, I think, important for understanding Ode to Psyche. Here is more of the history of religion and the history of literature smashed together. Keats is not just interested in love and beauty, Cupid and Psyche. He's interested in what love or desire or beauty can do for a poet and what a poet can do for love and desire and beauty. And when it comes to beauty, or at least Psyche or the soul, he thinks, here we go, I can do a lot for her. She's been underserved. By history. She came late to the Latins, to those Romans. She didn't get the sincere worship that the earlier figures got. Christianity was about to overwhelm the pagans, and the gods became storybook characters, didn't they? She didn't get the sanctioning of a sanctuary. She didn't get a temple. And so, says Keats, now, hang on for a second. Imagine this. Here's a guy who himself is in love with Fanny. That's his version of beauty. He's found it. The natural role for him to step into, one might think, would be Cupid. In writing a poem to Psyche, an ode to Psyche, he might think, You are beautiful. I came upon you. I was supposed to destroy you. I fell in love. Now I must disguise my true self from you. You can imagine a poem written in that voice from the point of view of Cupid. It would fit Keats and who he was at that time. I'm sure he could have made some changes, could have adapted it to his own feelings. Instead, he finds a different point of view, a different way to imagine himself into the poem. And he says, you don't need a lover. You don't need me to be your lover. You had a lover. You had Cupid. What you need, Psyche, is a priest. You need the structure and the ceremony and the reverence of a religion. You need an interpreter, just as priests and preachers bring the Bible and God to the masses, or the gods, if we're talking about the heathen religions. So too does a poet bring the concepts of beauty to the world. Bards of passion and of mirth, this is your calling. And Keats says, it's my calling, too. I am a poet. I will be your priest. I'll put the magic and mystery of you into the minds of people. You didn't get the devotion you deserved. I'll take things from here. Let's look at the poem again. Ode to Psyche by John Keats. O oh, goddess, it begins, hear these tuneless numbers rung by sweet enforcement and remembrance dear. That's the first line. The tuneless numbers are Keats's verses. He's being modest here. But we see the theme right away. Oh, goddess, exclamation mark. Here I am. That says, oh, goddess, listen to my verses. I'm not Cupid. I'm not your lover. Not in that sense. I believe in you as a goddess. I'm excited about that. But I come to you humbly, hat in hand, as a poet. Which just so happens... To be the greatest calling I can imagine. I view it as more worthy of my time than literally helping people who are sick and diseased and need the help of a physician. So even though I'm being modest about it, let's keep that in mind. 
Being a poet is something of paramount importance here. It's essential. Next line. And pardon that thy secrets should be sung even into thine own soft conjured ear. But surely I dreamt today, or did I see the winged psyche with awakened eyes? I wandered in a forest thoughtlessly, and on the sudden, fainting with surprise, saw two fair creatures couched side by side in deepest grass beneath the whispering roof of leaves and trembled blossoms where there ran a brooklet scarce espied. Okay, most of that part is just setting the scene in the forest where Keats says, I absentmindedly or without a care in the world, without a trouble, came into this forest thoughtlessly. Then I saw you, Psyche, with your ear like a shell, a soft conched ear, a soft shell, a thing of beauty, not harsh with jagged edges and full of gritty sand, but a creature like the sea, a smooth curve, gentle ridges in that shell, like Venus, in fact, but it's you, a winged psyche, an angel. I saw you with another fair creature in the grass. This is in the meadow or the forest, underneath a whispering roof of leaves and trembled blossoms near a little stream that is hard to see, that's scarce espied, a babbling brook. It's a private little place that I'm seeing here, that I'm encountering, a place where two lovers might go for a tryst. The whispering roof of leaves and trembled blossoms. That's a very Keatsian phrase. Remember Fitzgerald, who loved Keats, F. Scott Fitzgerald, his favorite line of Keats, maybe his favorite line in all of poetry. I think he said, was this one. Quote, the hair limped trembling through the frozen grass. End quote. That was from The Eve of St. Agnes, written just before this poem. And F. Scott said, look at that line. You see the limp, the hair limped trembling through the frozen grass. You see the hair, but you see the limp, you see the tremble, you see the freezing. It's all there with those verbs. And he... He aped it himself with this one, this line of Fitzgerald's. He said, the limousine crawled crackling down the pebbled drive. A direct theft or an homage or, or an inspiration, putting the lessons of Keats's poetry into his own highly poetic prose. If you want to write like F. Scott Fitzgerald, you can read F. Scott Fitzgerald, but you should also read plenty of Keats because that's where he gets his prose style from. Okay, back to the poem. The next stanza gives us the scene and the two lovers. Mid hushed, cool-rooted flowers, fragrant-eyed, blue, silver-white, and budded Tyrian. Keats had actually written Syrian there. His publishers couldn't figure that out, so they changed it to Tyrian, which means purple. It's Greek and Roman for purple. They lay calm breathing on the bedded grass, their arms embraced, and their pinions too. Pinions are wings, like these are two angels. But also it emphasizes they're fully intertwined, not just their arms, but their wings. They're close to one another. So we've got the cool-rooted flowers, blue, silver-white, purple, fragrant-eyed. That's a nice little touch. And in this bedded grass, we see these two lovers embraced. And then listen to this line. Their lips touched not, but had not bade adieu. Isn't that perfect? Isn't that perfect? They kissed. They're not kissing now, but they're still in that afterglow of a kiss, enjoying one another. They've not said goodbye yet. Goes on. As if disjoined by soft-handed slumber, and ready still past kisses to outnumber at tender eye-dawn of Aurorian love, the winged boy I knew. But who was thou, O happy, happy dove? His psyche true. I love this too. It's kind of strange. It's kind of a strange move. It's a kind of a jump cut. <laughs> Tarantino-esque, if you're willing to give jump cuts and shifts in time, the Tarantino-esque uh, adjective, which I guess, why not? He, he was famous for it, although he certainly didn't invent any of it. It's been in literature for centuries. Okay, 
He's already called, Keats has already called her Psyche, right? He's already identified her for us as Psyche. Then he flashes back slightly to revisit the point before he realized that it was Psyche. And he says, I knew the other guy. I recognized him. He doesn't even bother to name him. The winged boy I knew. <laughs> He's giving him kind of the back of his hand. I told you he didn't want to step into the shoes of Cupid. But it's not like he wants to spend a lot of time celebrating Cupid either. Okay. So he says, first he calls her Psyche. He tells us this is all about Psyche. Signals that to us, but then he steps back into this moment before he realized, before he recognized her. So he introduces her again. She gets introduced twice in the poem. She gets two exclamation marks. Once by the speaker, the poet, who says, Oh, goddess, at the beginning. And he says, Surely I was dreaming today, or did I see Psyche? Which is kind of like the way he ends Ode to a Nightingale. Did you notice? Which is also about poets writing poems and poetry, capital P. The effect of the imagination, which was very central to Keats. That poem ends, Was it a vision or a waking dream? Fled is that music. Do I wake or sleep? That's where we kind of are here, too. We're in this dream state, right? He says, Maybe I dreamt this, but it was like a dream. It was a vision. So we get that introduction to Psyche up front. Then the speaker backs up and recalls his first encounter where he says, the winged boy I knew. Yeah, Cupid, whatever. Been there, seen that before. But who were you, you happy, happy dove? Is Psyche true? Exclamation mark. And the syllables launch us right into the air. Four quick syllables. The shortest line in the poem so far, like a quick exclamation, a cry of delight, a gasp. Dove isn't a traditional uh, symbol for Psyche, but Mary Tig had Psyche as a dove. It's suitable for Keats. The ear is a shell, but a soft one. This is a bird, a delicate and soft creature, this angel. Now, we get some background of Psyche, some context for her. O latest born and loveliest vision, far of all Olympus' faded hierarchy. The latest born, the faded hierarchy, we're setting up what he's about to announce, which is that he will be the priest to revive her status and give her the devotional treatment she deserves. Poem goes on, fairer than Phoebe's sapphire-regent star, or vesper amorous glowworm of the sky, fairer than these, though temple thou hast none. See, he says, you're like the stars, you're like the moon, you're even more beautiful than heavenly bodies, but we worship all those, but you don't have a temple. His next lines, nor altar heaped with flowers, nor virgin choir to make delicious moan upon the midnight hours. No voice, no lute, no pipe, no incense sweet from chain-swung censer teeming. No shrine, no grove, no oracle, no heat of pale-mouthed prophet dreaming. There we go. That lays it out. Just as Keats said to his brother in the letter, Psyche arrived late. There's no temple to her, no altar piled with flowers. She didn't get any of that. She didn't get a virgin choir to make a delicious moan. This is so Keats, that line, a virgin choir moaning. Well, that might not be quite right. Delicious moan. There you go. That's what a virgin choir does, right? It howls. No, it sweetly howls. You don't just say it, it sings. That doesn't capture the beauty and the sublimity of what their sound is like. It's not just a, a few great singers singing some song. It's a virgin choir. There's sanctity in that. There's something austere and pure and repressed, too. Something beautiful and something awful all at once. There's a moan in there. We use a virgin choir not just to snap our fingers and tap our feet. This is music worthy of gods, worthy of us when we come to worship gods, part of a ceremony, part of ancient religious fervor. 
devotional music for the midnight hours, not just some little morning whistle or some afternoon ditty. You go there at night with candles, with sweet incense swinging from a chain, teeming with aroma, a censer. This is what you find in a temple, people. We're not just sitting in a library writing words here. Our imagination is transplanting us into a whole different world. Keats is thinking it, creating it for us, putting it into words, and now we're all there too, where Psyche is the goddess and is getting the kind of devotional worship she always deserved with the accoutrements that such a goddess receives when the passion is devout and ardent and sacrificial and robust. O brightest, the poem goes on, O brightest, though too late for antique vows, too, too late for the fond believing liar, when holy were the haunted forest boughs, holy the air, the water, and the fire, yet even in these days so far retired from happy pieties, thy lucent fans, fluttering among the faint Olympians. This is kind of repeating the same idea. You're the brightest, Psyche. You never got your due. You didn't get that good old pagan worship with air and water and fire and people. It had all flickered out and and fluttered. It was fluttering by the time you arrived. But here we go. Story's not over for you, Psyche. Back to the poem. I see and sing by my own eyes inspired. So let me be thy choir and make a moan upon the midnight hours. Thy voice, thy lute, thy pipe, thy incense sweet from swinging censer teeming. Thy shrine, thy grove, thy oracle, thy heat of pale-mouthed prophet dreaming. I'll be everything you didn't get. I will be yours. I will be your voice, your lute, your pipe, the pale-mouthed prophets, the shrines, all of it, the whole package. Let me be that for you. How? How? What does that make me if I'm Keats? What does that make me? Well, let me explain. Poem continues. Yes, I will be thy priest and build a fane, a fane is a temple, build a fane in some untrodden region of my mind, where branched thoughts, new grown with pleasant pain, instead of pines, shall murmur in the wind. Far, far around those dark clustered trees, fledge the wild ridged mountains, steep by steep, and there by zephyrs, streams, and birds, and bees, the moss-lane dryads shall be lulled to sleep. His thoughts and words and ideas, he's building this all in his mind. His thoughts and his words and his ideas are branching out like the branches of trees, new grown in pleasant pain. He says, I'm building you a temple here, a temple in my mind, out of my words and my feelings, my imagination. This is like a dream, you know? I'm a priest, but it's not a confident, all-knowing authority figure, this priest who studies and learns and delivers the message from some position of all-knowing superiority. He says, I'm the pale-mouthed prophet kind of priest, the one who is as much heart as brain, who shows up out of raw feeling, overpowered, humbled, imagining, Worshipping because I have fallen to my knees in wonder, overwhelmed by your beauty, trembling at the sight of it. But, as a poet, I'm up to the task. I can deliver what you need. Here's how the poem finishes. And in the midst of this wide quietness, a rosy sanctuary will I dress with the wreathed trellis of a working brain, with buds and bells, and stars without a name, with all the gardener fancy air could feign, who, breeding flowers, will never breed the same. And there shall be for thee all soft delight that shadowy thought can win, a bright torch and a casement hope at night to let the warm love in. To let the warm love in. A beautiful last line. It sounds right. To let the warm love in the kind of phrase that sticks with you. 
but it's a little curious here. A bright torch, a window, that's a casement, a window open at night to let the warm love in. That's what I can create for you. Now, why a window? Why is that suddenly here? It's a little odd, right? We're in a meadow. Everything being created is a temple, and it's all natural. It's branches. It's a wreathed uh, trellis. It's buds and bells and stars. It's flowers. All this is the temple that Keats is building in his mind. It sounds more like a sacred grove or enchanted garden. And suddenly, there's a window that's open at night to let the warm love in. Why a window? Why did that pop into his head? He concludes this whole temple creation with a window. Suddenly, we don't even see Psyche anymore. We see this window and the love coming into it. Warm love arriving. Why? Well, how about this? How about this for some speculation as to why this image came into Keats's mind and felt right and seemed right and he put it in and didn't cross it out and it somehow fits. It somehow fits perfectly. But why? Well, Keats was living in a house now and across the way, Fanny, Fanny Braun lived with her mother. A garden separated them. Their windows literally opened onto one another. You could keep the windows open at night as you would in the warm summer evenings, and the same warm breeze that touched John, that stirred him in his sleep, would also be the one blowing through the room of his love, his fancy Fanny Braun. That was the power of a window. It was a connector of two souls. Closed, there's no contact. Open, there's a flowing spirit that can reach across like light traveling through the atmosphere or a song vibrating through the cosmos or a sigh traveling from lips to ear. It's like love traveling from the heart of a penitent sinner to the gods and goddesses who deserve their devotion, mediated by our prophets and our priests who helps steer us toward feelings of worship and remember who Keats wants to be, at least if we're to trust the poem. Not Cupid, falling in love with Psyche, but the poet, who's there to make sure that no matter what happens to that beauty or to the beautiful body that loves that beauty, there is a priest on hand to admire the beauty and the love and to help the rest of us see and appreciate it and remember it. Keats wants love. And he wants to be in love, but he also wants to celebrate love. He doesn't take the place of a god, but of a poet who can act like a prophet or a priest with love and beauty as our divinities. And why? Partially it's because these gods and goddesses deserve our devotion for their beauty and their love. And partially because we ourselves deserve to experience the giving of that devotion whether that's earthly love, spiritual love, or the magic that happens when an inspired poet leaves this world behind and enters the realm of imagination and immortality. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I'm so glad you could join us. I hope I did that poem justice. I have to admit, I'm an amateur at this stuff. I'm enthusiastic, but I get a lot of things wrong. You should go read Anahid Nersessian's book for her take on Ode to Psyche and the other five odes as well. You are in good hands with Anahid. Speaking of good hands, I feel like I'm in good hands, or at least I'd like to think so. The good hands of my listeners who have been so supportive. Thank you very much for all your generous emails and contributions, your kind words and helpful suggestions. My thanks to Mr. John Keats today, of course, and Xiao Jun from China and Josh from Australia, who helped us out today with their emails. We are partnered up with LitHub Radio. Check them out and check out The Podglomerate at www.thepodglomerate.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
the Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.